0: Hello and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. On this week's program, we bring you voices of women in Eastern Kentucky. First, we'll hear speeches and poetry from Pikeville on the one-year anniversary of the historic Women's March. The speakers eloquently and powerfully lay out the situation for women in Eastern Kentucky and the world today. Then, we'll travel back in time with a story from our archives here at WMMT. Produced by Maxine Kinney in 1991, the piece brings us voices of women in fast food restaurants. And last, we'll hear two brief interviews conducted by Kelly Haywood in 2016. All of these stories paint a picture of the strength, resiliency, and leadership of mountain women throughout time. In the first half of our program, Rabia Wazir describes the changes we've seen since the Women's March in 2017 and introduces the speakers at last week's Women's March in Pikeville, Kentucky.
1: march empowered women to speak and act and throughout last year we saw the effects of that empowerment everywhere. We saw it from the, in the two movement and in upset elections in Virginia, Alabama, Minnesota, elsewhere. Um, and I, you know, I just have to brag about some of these because they're just so uplifting in a time when we needed them most. Wilmot Collins, a progressive refugee from Liberia, became the first black mayor in Montana's history. Uh, In Virginia, Danica Rome, a 33 year old trans woman, beat a 13 term incumbent who called himself the state's chief homophobe and who authored the bathroom bill there. So that was me. In New Jersey, Ashley Bennett, a 31-year-old woman and first-time candidate, was moved to run for office after a male county legislator posted a meme on Facebook that asked, will the Women's March protest be over in time for them to cook dinner? She beat him handily. And we saw Jefferson Bureau Guard Sessions Senate seat taken by Doug Jones, a civil rights lawyer and convicted Klansman. You know We're gonna be carrying forward that energy this year. We're gonna register more women to vote and elect even more women and progressive candidates to public office. This rally is about letting people know we are here, we are fighting harder than ever on the side of truth, decency, the greater good, and justice for all. You know, I think that silence can be incredibly powerful, but as we know, uh, telling our stories can be even more powerful, and we saw that in the Me Too movement this year. Um, Our first speaker, Tanya Turner, is gonna touch on that subject. She's the auntie and eldest daughter of four from Bell County. She moved to Letcher County in 2010 after graduating from EKU. She's worked with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth and the East Kentucky School System before joining the Arts and Media Education Center Apple Shop. <laughs> um, Tani has contributed to youth programming at the Highlander Center and Stay Together Appalachian Youth Project, as well as local organizing to stop not only the new federal prison proposed in the county, it's it's USP Letcher. She leads sexy sex ed workshops all over the region, as and as recently covered by CNN. Her weekly WMT radio show, Feminist Friday, features all female artists and in interviews. Just this winter, Tanya joined the board of Kentucky funded for the the Board of Kentucky Foundation for Women.
2: I time. Please keep giving it up for Rabia. She's a fierce force. Um, in the last year, she has definitely stepped up um, in, in a lot of organizing capacities, and I'm in awe of her constantly. So big shout-out to Rabia, y'all buy her lunch or a bath bomb or something. Um, So like she said, I'm Tanya, and I have a couple radio shows, um, and I help with a regional podcast, so you might guess I like to talk, (laughs) Um, and I suspect that's why they asked me to talk today about something that we hadn't been talking enough about, and that is pretty difficult to talk about. Um, so, the Me Too slogan was created by a black woman, Tarana Burke, uh, to support and connect survivors of sexual assault. But when the hashtag hit social media, it was, it was insanely overwhelming, as you all know. So many people have survived sexual violence that the hashtag turned into this cry of relief among strangers um, and connected people all over the world. But we had to relive experiences that we had buried pretty deep, and then rethink situations that we had blamed ourselves for or written off as normal. Um, and for the first time we were even relating to women with money and influence in Hollywood in ways we hadn't before. Me Too also reminded us that our trans community is the most, success, um, the most likely to experience this kind of violence, sexual violence. The number two cause of death for black women my age is by domestic violence, compared to mine, I think, is heart disease, bacon, essentially. That's like, I mean, this is, this is a serious, um, I think that's why it's so important that we're centering the stories and strategies of women of color in this moment. It's not by accident, um, and it's certainly, um, we should have been long before, and now hopefully we know better. But this, is, um, this moment became this huge cultural time, right? It wasn't just a hashtag campaign. It wasn't just this one-off. It's not just this one-off social media situation. This is a cultural moment. Tarana Burke walked the red carpet at the Golden Globes, right? That's a pretty crazy thing. And it caused women like my mom to say Me Too for the first time ever and have a conversation with me that she had never had. Right, that's a, that's, we can say what we want about Hollywood being this fluffy, strange place that we don't necessarily have to, have to deal with, but that's a pretty impressive thing. Um, and even women who have money and influence are dealing with sexual violence. So even these political structures, the political power, money power, economic power, and social power, those are the kind of systems that we have to work in right now. And women, as these signs say, as Robbia mentioned, women have been completely locked out of a lot of economic power and political power for too long. And so this social power, this shift in social power, it's, it's important, it's not to be slept on. This is a moment that we are still in and we have a lot to learn about and move forward from. How many of you, by show of hands, found out about a survival story from someone you know and love that you didn't know before because they said, me too? So we've been living in a lot of this shame and and disassociation um, that we don't have to live in anymore. We don't have to live in these dark places. And talking and thinking totally differently all of a sudden about consent. I teach sex ed workshops, and when I talk about consent with teenagers, I ask them, what are the times in our everyday lives that we are giving consent or or not giving consent? When people ask to borrow something, and we say, yeah, take it, or no, actually, I need it next week. Like, we do this, we're practicing, we have practice in these things. But the problem is, we don't talk about sex Right, we don't talk about the good stuff, the bad stuff, the scary stuff, the uncertain stuff. Like we have to be talking about this stuff. We have to talk about it, and that's what Me Too helped us do: move past this, like all this shame, so that we can talk about this. So Me Too really used media to balance the scales of power. An Apple shop where I work has been um, using the power of homegrown media and arts to kind of shift this quality of life. Um, policy and painful narratives for almost 50 years because we're a creative intuitive and brave people because women raised us <laughs> <laughs> yes. give it up to the moms so Appalachian women at Apple shop are currently reviving a media project led by young women that started over five years ago to spotlight women's stories and experiences around reproductive needs right here in East Kentucky And so now called All Access EKY is building on a slew of women's stories told by us in our voices that sound like us and look like us. And you're gonna hear more about that a little bit later and this power in numbers that we have to take seriously. So in 2016, over half of the white women that, that made it to the polls, which still is an alarmingly low number, voted for a known predator We know these women. I know these women. You know these. How many people know a woman who they know how they voted or they didn't vote at all? Right? We know women who didn't get to the polls. We don't see ourselves there. We don't have anyone to vote for. We need to be talking about this. We got to be listening to each other. If you don't vote, why? Let's talk about it. And that's why this year's rally in March, this anniversary moment, is about this power to the polls, pushing progressive women to run for office so that we can vote for each other, that we can help each other run, that we can run ourselves, right? How many people do you all know who you wish would run for office? Because you've had these conversations with them and you know how powerful they can be. Call her ask her when she's going to run for city council ask her how you can help and in two weeks ask her again and take something off her plate so that she can think about it these are hard decisions (laughs) we got school boards city council mayors commissioners judge executives magistrates you don't have to go to Frankfurt or dc god who would want to Well, there are things that need to happen right here and we can push for policies right here and God knows about this consent question. Consent certainly starts here at our bodies, that's for sure, but it does not end here. I do not consent to an education system that has me buried so deep under student loans that I will never pay them off. I don't consent to a, medica- a medical system that has me so deep under medical bills I will never pay them off. I don't consent to prisons... There's, I don't consent to men making decisions about my county that puts it in a one million dollar budget and lays off the primary, primarily all of their workers. Like I don't, we we don't, we haven't consented to these decisions. And, and in this moment, when we are able to think more clearly and like ha- build our own agency and talk to one another and listen to one another about our own experiences and hopes and dreams and fears, we can talk about this consent and how it starts here, but it has no end. But the point here is that we need a whole new system. I mean, our government is literally shut down right now, as far as I know. I haven't checked my Twitter feed in the last half hour. I don't know. And in my opinion, we need a whole new system, but an important strategy is pushing that system from the inside, again, from city council, from senators, house reps, mayors, the people that Robbie had talked about getting elected. I mean, it was a pretty big deal this past November when trans women, women of color all over this country and all over the South, people are sleeping on the South and we know not to. And when those, this last November, when those election results came out, I was so upset that I didn't already know about these women running for office to help them. I would have sent them $25. I would have did what I could. Right, so how do we figure this out early so that we help women register to vote, we help women get in um, under these deadlines to run for office. Most of these local offices don't have primaries. You You can register to run up until the summer. These are dates we should know. I should have known this to tell y'all. I'm sorry. <laughs> one, the city council deadline. I do know that one because I really want to run for city council, for a uh, school board. It's August 31st, so I do know that one, or August 30th. Okay, so when women can push from within the system after we get elected, they can push for comprehensive sex education. Oh. <laughs> For social safety net programs, for reproductive choices, and for God's sakes, health care for all people. And then, that's when we are, um, when we can, when we have the foundation, when we have those things, we have the foundations to talk about it, to talk about the world we want to live in, and when we talk about it, talking leads to organizing, and organizing is how we get there, Right? So I've caught a glimpse of the world I wanna see, and I think you all have too, and that's why you're here. And talking and organizing is how we get there, and so I wanna talk about it more with you all, and I'm so glad you had me here. I mean, people from, we know this system isn't working. People from Martin County to Michigan don't have water to drink. This is not uh, an isolated issue, and we have a lot in common, and we have a lot of opportunity to talk about it and organize around it. Thank y'all so much.
1: that was amazing. Um, our next speaker, speaker is Dr. Pretty Sahasi. Uh, Dr. Sahasi is presently the director or the director of dental di- in, in the direction of the dental division of Williamson Health and Wellness Center. Uh, she's a graduate of Boston University and has been practicing dentistry for 15 years. She's received several awards from the ADA. Uh, she's adjunct fun- faculty at the uh, U-Pikes uh, School of Osteopathic Medicine. She lives in Pikeville with her husband, Dr. Sharma, and her two children, Anish and Anika. Her motto is Women's Rights Are Human Rights. Come on
3: up. Thank you so much for having me here. I am here to talk to you about women empowerment. This is a subject close to my heart, one that I'm passionate and committed towards. I ask myself, why am I here? Um, And the answer lies in my story, the story of an Indian woman and her journey. I am the product of visionary parents who decided early on to give me an education. I went to an all-girls Catholic school. It was called Laredo Convent. This is a branch of the convent started by Mother Teresa in Calcutta in India. So I was very fortunate to be part of that. My parents early on had defied society and risen above not only gender, but also religious bias. India is predominantly a Hindu country. We are secular. But they rose above that and decided to send me to the Catholic school because they thought that that's where I would get the best education. I think it was a wise decision. They gave me opportunities that were not common for women growing up in India at that time. And I learned early on that those opportunities were not to be taken for granted. I was encouraged and expected to excel. And I, as I continued to pursue my doctoral degree, most of my friends were busy um, being dolled up to get married. Uh, and when you're 22, you think like, you know, that's that's the fairy tale world Um, when my daughter was born 35 years later my mother gave her a barbie her first barbie it was the president barbie and the message was clear once again it was that you can be who you want to be you just have to work towards it in my education both in my school and at home i had learned that giving was important This was not a choice, it was a responsibility. So when you studied in an all Christian school in India, um, Christians were a minority and the Hindus were a majority. So while they were taught catechism for one hour a week, we were taught moral science for that one hour. Um, And even though we talked about things that were probably very obvious, I think those discussions of, of value systems and morality guide me even today. I wish my children had some more of that than they do. (laughs) My parents, especially my mother, constantly sponsored many girls, girls who undoubtedly would never have seen the walls of a school if it wasn't for the help and encouragement she gave them. She's a psychologist and probably saw more than the usual victims of victims and survivors of child marriages, abuse, violence, illiteracy. And growing up as a teenager, I I was constantly aware of this. We always had a young girl in the house when I was growing up, at some stage in her life where she needed a few days to stay. Um, And I became aware that there was one reason for this, and there was one solution, and it was education. It was what fuels my fire. It's where my passion to empower women stems from. I know that a girl's education not only empowers families, but also communities and economies. And and as a result of her education, we will all do better. I believe today, more than ever before, there is a greater understanding that women need to participate, not just at home, in societies, in our workplaces, and in our government. Millions of girls around the world, even today, are denied an education. Two-thirds of the 777 million illiterate are female. Four million more girls than boys will never see a school. If all women had an education, there would be 1.7 million less malnourished children in the world. The evidence of economic impact of educating girls is so overwhelming, because every year of secondary education, even in developed countries, raises the GDP by more than 20%. Um, Sending more girls to school, of course, reduces, as you all know, the delays childbearing, less likely to contract sexually transmitted diseases, lowers the infant mortality rate, and girls would raise healthier families, healthier communities. The evidence between the lack of education and violence towards women is overwhelming. It's heartbreaking. Gender-based violence is is even today a global it's a global phenomena, and no place in most regions is less safe than their own homes. More than one in three women have expressed violence in their homes. In the United States, one in five women will be raped at some point in their lives. One in four will be sexually assaulted before the age of 18. One. Are there's one. There's a woman beaten every nine seconds in the United States. In 1993, the UN General Assembly declared an elevation of violence against women. But 20 years later, one in three women, even today, experience sexual or physical violence. And I believe that education is the only solution. I think that is what will empower women to change this. I'm here today, not so that I can, I can just talk to you. But so those without a voice can be heard. We cannot succeed if half of us are held back. Uh, in my own way, in the community, I, I'm a coach for the academic team, and I have been for the last four years now. Not only because my children are on the team. It, it's just it's my way of supporting education. So I do want to tell any girl out there, or boy, but. Possibly more girls than boys. <laughs> that it, that it, but if, if there's a career track that you're looking at that you think I can be of any assistance to you, please reach out. If I don't know the answers, I'll certainly find the answers. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Uh,
1: our next speaker is Gypsy Cantrell-Ratliff. Uh, Gypsy's been involved in organized labor <laughs> most of her adult life, in addition to being active in democratic politics on a local, state, and national level. She is president of the United Steelworkers Workers Local 14581 in Elkhorn City and primarily represents employees in heavy and highway construction. Come on board.
4: Thank y'all. I'm proud as a peacock to be here. Um, I have worked for a few days and try, I've never prepared a speech. I'm, I'm one of those off-the-cuff people. And I, so I worked and I worked and I worked. And I had all these statistics and things that I wanted to tell you. And then all of a sudden, last night, when I was look, reviewing all my statistics, I realized the one thing that connected the entire pad that I had written notes in and that was one word. It was fear. That's what's wrong with women today. Why we take a back seat to so many things. That's why that we don't have a park full of people here today. That's why you don't see many elected officials here today. That's that one word—it's—it's it's not really a word. It's not an emotion. It's—it's it's almost like a condition. And I've seen it practically my entire life. Um, I am a strong woman because I was raised by a strong woman. A lot of people think I was raised by a strong man, which I was. But they didn't know my mother. My mother was a strong woman. My mother always told me, she said, Gypsy. And I didn't do everything my mom told me. I disappointed her in a lot of ways. But like Dr. Preeta said, education was important. And my mom always told me, she said, Gypsy, make sure that you go to school. Get you an education. Depend on yourself. Don't depend on any man to take care of you because if you do you're going to let yourself down because they are going to let you down and I can honestly say that I've had them let me down I mean I'm on my third marriage (laughs) so they've let me down but we cannot be afraid to stand up I work in the heavy and highway construction industry Today, I'm, I'm not out in the field. I work in an office, um, but I, li- I, I work in a predominantly male-oriented industry, actually of organized labor. That's, that's very male-oriented. But in heavy and highway construction, anybody that says that we're not going to have no quotas in this country... They don't know what they're talking about. We've had them ever since affirmative action. You know, EEOC, it began by not discriminating against color. It didn't discriminate against religion. But you could still discriminate against women. It was affirmative action in 1974 that put women in places and I remember when it passed we was sitting in my I was I think a junior in high school maybe or senior but we was in the living room watching tv one evening and my dad got a phone call from one of our contractors and I don't know what he was saying but you could hear him all over the house he was wild crazy because they had passed and they was going to have to put women out there on these construction jobs. They was going to have to teach them how to run equipment. They was going to have to put a flag in her hand and endanger all these people driving up and down the road. And the only part of the conversation that I heard was on my dad's part. And he said, well, Louie, I don't know what I could, what to tell you to do. But I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you to work them. And so he did. We worked them. We trained them. My best friend here, D.D., she's a grader operator. I'd say there's a lot of men out there who wouldn't even know how to get on one, let alone start it. Well, Rose, another one of my good friends, she runs a grader. We've got truck drivers, and women can do whatever they set in their mind to do. I didn't have the education, but I had the willpower. You know, and I've had people tell me, well, you know, Gypsy, you're, you got that position because it was gift to you. No, I didn't. No, it was not gift to me. I took it. I fought for it. And I still fight for it. You know, my dad... Patted me on the head one time when I told him when I was little, I said, I want to grow up and be a construction worker and a union woman. He patted me on the head and he said, Well, Gypsy, you know, that's nice, but women don't do that. You'll have to find you something else to do. Well, it took me a few years, but I proved him wrong. Women have got to get the will. Women have got to raise strong sons. It ain't just raising strong women. You got to raise strong sons. I don't have any girls. I raised two boys. I have two stepsons. But they're strong men, they know how to treat women. Oh, they've done a few rotten things in their life, like all kids do. But I raise strong men, and they won't say that a woman can't do nothing. They will encourage other women. They will encourage them to do things. They will actually step in when they see a woman not being treated respectfully, and they will actually step in and try to intervene in that. Nowadays, and it, it gets better sometimes, but sometimes you think it's better, and it's not really better. But they hide it, women do, when they're not respected. Men hide not respecting women. But we got to raise those strong men that will actually say, no, you ain't going to do that. Not today and not around me. And I'm proud of my boys for that, that they was that way. And it's because I was raised by a strong woman. My brothers was the same way. They did not mistreat women. Oh, they might have been rotten, but they didn't mistreat women um, Women in the workplace is not has not changed a whole lot. Women in the workplace are still devalued. Women in the workplace are still harassed, both sexually and just I don't know what the other word is for the type of, of, of harassment that it would be, but they're they're just devalued. I know on air jobs, you know, every time they build a road, those roads eventually get done. They start laying off. They do the layoff cycle. First ones they want to lay off is a woman because they think women can't do nothing. They had two or three women that they actually valued, but they wanted rid of the women. And the women, for the most part, could outdo the men. In their field so women must get rid of the fear they must teach the men to not be feared to, to produce the fear and then they can advance but you know DD Dee Dee was talking earlier about back in 1960s we're products of the 60s you know back in the love make love not war days, flare children, what have you. And we fought those battles back then. We marched. We protested. We got in a lot of debates. We thought those times was over, but they've never been over. They've only been hidden. People got better at hiding them. Me too. People scared to death to say say that they were sexually harassed or that they were treated in a violent manner they were afraid to do that because we were made to feel shame i challenge you not to back down i challenge you to go out and help women not back down i challenge you to help men not try to make a woman back down i challenge you to do that and then we won't have a lot of the problems we got but this park should be full today It's embarrassing to know that we live in Appalachia and this activity today shows the ignorance that the world portrays of us. To me, that's what I see by people not being here. They should be here to support the wrongs that are being committed against women, that's being committed against people of color, that's being committed against people because of their religions against them for whatever it may be. But they're not here. No elected officials are here. I appreciate Angie Hat for being here. Woo-hoo. Now you talk about somebody that's in the middle of some muck. We're going to have to take up a collection and buy her some muck boots. And we're going to have to buy her a spade. Maybe she can shovel some of that out of the way down there. Because she is in the middle of it down there in Frankfurt. And those people have got to be gone. We've got to vote. You know, I, I was looking at some tis, statistics, and it's not just that women have to vote, they have to be educated on, be, on voting. Do you know in, in the state of Kentucky that 60 it was 62 percent, I believe, was the number of registered women voted in Kentucky. Donald Trump won by 87 <laughs> percent. Now, I've heard every reason in the world why he was elected, but I, I, I've not heard any why, he was, why women voted for him. I, I don't understand women voting for him. But voting, it's not just voting, it's being educated. And if you're in a workplace and you have a boss comes and puts his arm around you, most of you got nails, you dig in. <laughs> and you report that. It is a violation of the law. I've handled EEO case, EEOC cases, sexual harassment. I've personally handled those. I've seen bosses replaced I'm not a lawyer, but I I mediate in my line of work and arbitrate. Got arbitration coming up here at the end of this month over the very same thing. But we can't talk about it. We should be able to talk about it. Um, But just say no. Don't let it happen. And don't be afraid. To go out there and do whatever your mind tells you can do. Because you'll never know whether you can do it or not until you do. Thank you all for coming out. I'm proud to be here and educate yourself. Whether it's in a Pikeville University of Pikeville, I keep wanting to call it Pikeville College. You don't have to be in a building to get educated. Too much available to you to become educated. You don't need a degree to be smart. I know more people. With degrees, it's about as ignorant as they come. So, educate yourself, your children, your friends, then go vote. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Gypsy. Um, our, we have a performance from Michaela Curry next. Michaela is a native of North Carolina. She holds multiple degrees in environmental and earth sciences and spent most of her early career working in the scientific field. She's written poetry most of her life and while living in Florida, she started sharing her work through local open mic venues. Um, Michaela moved to Pikeville in 2016 and works as an at-home parent and ESL teacher. And she also started and manages Pikeville Poetry. So um, she's been holding that about once a month. I strongly encourage you all to attend. But please join me in welcoming Michaela.
5: Thank you. So if you were at this event last year, you'll recognize the poem I'm reading. It's called On Being a Woman. However, I've added something to it which seemed fitting since we're building on the momentum of last year. Being a woman in this world is a dangerous endeavor. She might be brilliant, industrious, clever, but the first thing they'll notice will be her lines, her curves, her grace, her breasts, her butt, her face, the cut of her dress, the length of her hem, as if everything she does, she does it for them. It's pervasive, subtle, insidious. This mandate, she must not be hideous. Inherently, in being human, there is beauty, and that she embraces. But society and media create unattainable ideals they tell her to chase, so that herself will be something she no longer understands. Instead, something to buy, to fix, to be defined by a man. They'll tell her how to make it, how to fake it, that she should smile, that she should shake it. And even if she's strong, they'll tell her that she's wrong that she should be weaker, softer, meeker, argue less, listen more, mother, housewife, poor, Caricatures, simply defined, because it's best to be simple, to stay in the lines. I say, let woman be woman, let her be loud. I say, let woman be woman, let her be proud. Not subject to objectification at every turn, not tied up, beaten, forbidden to learn, not scorned, belittled, or shamed into silence, not abused, ignored, or controlled by violence. Being a woman in this world is a dangerous endeavor, but change coming late, it's better than never. And I hear the voices rising, as I know they have before, but this time it must be different, this time it must be more. This time, it must be past the streets. Let's take it to the floor of Senate, of the House of Reps. Let's get out of our comfort zone and get into the depths. Because women, we're creators, even if we don't give birth. And women, we're phenomenons, blessed unto this earth. So people, don't you think it's time to value women's worth? Get up, get out, get on your feet and step into these roles. Power to the people, and power to the polls.
0: Thank you. That was audio recorded in Pikeville, Kentucky, last week on the anniversary of the historic International Women's March of 2017. While movements for gender justice continue to receive increased media attention, and shift beyond conversations simply about women's rights to conversations about gender more broadly, the struggles are nothing new. Our next three stories from the WMMT archives feature strong Eastern Kentucky women. In 1991, then WMMT staff member Maxine Kinney produced the following story about women working in fast food restaurants in Eastern Kentucky.
6: Jobs are scarce in Eastern Kentucky these days. When men are laid off in the coal mines, women go out looking for some way to support the family. The first stop is often one of the fast food restaurants that dot the mountain landscape. There are few job opportunities in fast food these days, and for the women who are employed as waitresses or cooks, the wages are low. Maxine Kenney reports.
7: first restaurant I worked in was a big cafeteria right down in the middle of Detroit. That's where I got my experience. It's a lot different than the Kentucky Fried Chicken because everything you've done there, It was done by hand. When these boys would uh, sign up for the Army, the morning that they would have to leave, they would come to this cafeteria for breakfast. And uh, we would scramble maybe uh, 120 to 140 eggs, maybe for 50 to 60 boys, (laughs) fix them a nice plate.
8: Nellie Kincer began working as a cook many years ago in a slower, more personal time. Now she works in fast food, After working at Kentucky Fried Chicken for 4 years, she is still making the minimum wage. She is not alone. The vast majority of minimum wage workers in the United States are women. In eastern Kentucky, most fast food workers are women. In other parts of the country, fast food workers may be teenagers, the elderly, or minorities. Diverse as these workers may be, they all share the common lot of hard work at low pay, with few if any benefits. During the following interviews, we visited four fast-food restaurants in Letcher and Perry Counties.
6: To our customers, you are druthers. That's why your job performance and the image you project are so important. This section of the videotape will cover your appearance and the front line.
7: Yeah, they told you everything that was expected of you, know, everything. From when they walk in, hi, welcome to Pizza Hut, up to have a nice day. You think, did I say that right or did I remember to tell them this? To me, it took a lot away from me the way, the kind of person I was. And it made you into the kind of person they wanted you to be, you know, the kind of people you had to be to work there.
6: About a seventh of our currently employed labor force worked at McDonald's at some time. Basically, the process is to find out all the skills that used to go into the job siphon that skill out of the work and put that skill into the program and reconstitute the job so that you give it back to somebody so he's doing just small pieces of it. All that thinking is done centrally at Hamburger U.
8: Barbara Garson is the author of Electronic Sweatshop, a study of automation in the workplace. And,
6: and, oh, there is a Hamburger University at McDonald's. They think about it and then they design a process so that the person on the other end doesn't have to think at all. Just follow the beeps and buzzers.
7: Welcome, What can we go? One
6: small coffee, one large orange juice, and one small orange juice.
9: Go with that.
6: No, thank you. You tell people what to say. You're supposed to say, Would you like a drink with that? We want you to push a new product. We want you to push Danish. And so out of that, they begin to create a what you should say. You say, I might as well be talking to a machine. People are not becoming stupider, but management is determined that those people will not act like human beings. They have created a pattern of speech that they believe statistically will produce the most sales. funny thing is that McDonald's staff who think up the systems to automate everybody else have beanbag furniture and they have... Think-tank settings with waterfalls and pools. This is supposed to help them think creatively about making the other people's jobs uncreative. Your suggestive sale or upsell, like somebody says, I want a McDLT and a Coke. And you say, would you like a large Coke? As far as the management is concerned, it's simple in the sense that you don't learn more as you go along. And if the employee doesn't become more valuable over time, then you don't care about keeping them there. If you don't care about keeping them there, you don't have to treat
7: them very well or pay them very well. Now, just an ordinary restaurant, they let you work eight hours. But a fast-food place, you don't get 40 hours. Don't have no retirement. We're not getting vacation pay. They cut us Social Security. It really burned on my mind, I guess I could really grieve over it. I got paid 205 an hour plus my tips, and waitress is harder work than people think it is. When you see a paycheck for $70 for a week's work, it's pretty bad. A woman as a single parent. She couldn't pay the rent or anything with that.
8: <laughs> Women
7: have to be getting help from welfare, food stamps or something, to get by on what they're making. And, uh, yeah, you, we are. The taxpayers are helping. They're
2: paying Pizza Hut wages. 95% of the applications I take in are female. Probably the pay rate, the money, I start people out at minimum wage, and and, uh, that's
7: probably it, I guess.
8: Marion Clark is car owner and manager of Druthers, now the Dairy Queen.
7: Most applications I'm getting now is women that husbands are laid out that or having to go out in the workforce, you know,
2: because there's no other income coming in. Right now, the cold situation is the worst thing That I'm
7: getting more people right now from, but uh, probably I got, uh, I'd say, 1,500 applications. My husband's a minor. He worked at Scotia for about
8: 17 years, and they uh, laid him off, so he never get called back. When he uh, got laid off at Scotia, then I went back to work. I don't think I can do that kind of work that many more years. Oh, I'm gonna hang in there as long as I can, but I'm tired. Hopefully, he'll get some work pretty soon. You know, he just—it's been hard.
7: When the men go out on strike, they realize I'm taking a big chance, you know, by walking out for standing up for the union. You know, just there's no other way. Unless the waitresses, the cooks, I mean, I'm sure the cooks and stuff don't make it much better either. To come out, to walk off a job and say, you know, we're not going to do it, um, they'd probably have to form some kind of group to where that other people wouldn't come in and take their jobs because there's so many people that are working right here right now. When they walk out, there'd probably be a line waiting. But if everybody as a group did something about it, then it might make a difference.
8: For Mountain News and World Report, this is Maxine Kenny. You heard fast food women Pam Banks, a former waitress at Pizza Hut, Zelfia Adams, a worker at McDonald's, and Sarita Collier, a cook at Dairy Queen. This story was based on a Headwaters video entitled Fast Food Women, produced by Ann Johnson at Apple Shop. That's
5: yes,
6: your end product. You lay it drying, so you put it in a warmer and you sell it.
0: That was Fast Food Women, produced by Maxine Kinney for WMMT in 1991. Last on this week's program, we bring you two Letcher County residents who spoke to Kelly Haywood in 2016 about inspiring women in their lives.
10: My name is Lacey Hale, I am from Ermine, which is here in Letcher County, Kentucky, and I'm an artist, a visual artist, and I work a lot in the community, and I am inspired by several Appalachian women in my life. My mom, first and foremost, um, you know, she has raised four children. Uh, we grew up really poor. She always found ways to, I remember in our Easter baskets, she would, um, if they didn't have money to go out and buy toys, she would sew. Like, I remember particularly this this little bunny rabbit that she made all of us and it was you know kind of like a terry uh cloth but and it was yellow (laughs) and she put eyes and and stuff on it so she always made sure that we were I guess we really never realized when we were young how poor we were because she always had ways to feed us what we needed and clothe us you know give us toys make us toys make sure that we were happy and healthy and she continues to take care of us. You know, anytime we go to her house, it's always like, what can I I, if I don't feed you, you know, I'll feel bad. You know, you got to eat something. And she's a really strong person, and uh, I feel lucky to be her daughter. And her name is Havana Hale. I'm from Nock County, and that's where she still lives. Also, uh, both of my grandmas, my uh, maternal grandmother, she raised nine children. She, uh, you know, my grandpa worked in the mines, and so he was gone really long hours. Uh, There was a mine collapse at one point, and they didn't know where he was, and she or if he was okay, and, you know, she held it together and and took care of the family, and he got arrested I think twice for making moonshine and was in jail at one point for six months, and so she was really strong, and uh, there's a story about her delivering one of her children at home. You know, she had the baby by herself. She had it before the midwife could come, so she's strong stock. (laughs) And then my paternal grandmother, you know, I remember her, she, she was, she was very assertive. (laughs) And, um, uh, you know, I grew up uh, with them gardening and she worked, you know, just like a man and we'd get out. I mean, if I, you know, air quotes here, (laughs) just like a man, but she, you know, she wasn't afraid of like getting dirty, getting her hands dirty, getting out in the garden, working hard. She raised four children, on hardly anything and they gardened they had hogs and stuff like that that they slaughtered and they even had a little store in their house for a while that helped provide for their family and you know she just she was the force in that family she dealt with all the business and she really made sure that everybody had what they needed and then her two daughters uh, my aunts Patsy and Betty—they were artists, and they still are art- Well, Patsy has since passed away, but Betty's still alive, and um, she's she's an artist. And the, uh, but they both taught art. Patsy—I lived closer to her for a longer period of my life, and I remember going to Patsy's house, and she would have all of these, you know, boxes of crayons and and colored pencils and markers, and I thought I was in heaven, you know, because <laughs> I would go there, and she would let me use whatever art supplies that she had. And so I really think that that helped form me into the person I am today. She made sure to show me how to do certain, like, artistic techniques. And as a child, just just having the opportunity to, um, you know, to play around with that stuff and to be in, in just kind of, like, <laughs> deep in these, like, you know, with with all these, like, materials that I normally wouldn't have at home. You know, I, I had colored pencils and some crayons, but these, you know, she just had, like, a plethora of, <laughs> of supplies. Looking back, and it took me, I think it was after she passed away, I realized that she really inspired me as a child to be an artist. And I, I feel really lucky too because my, you know, my parents um, never discouraged me, and my mom has always pushed me to, to do what I want and to make sure that I live to be who I'm supposed to be. And they never said art was not a, a job, a real job. They always made sure that I knew that what I loved and what I wanted to do was uh, valuable and important. So I think all of these women, you know, my two grandmas, Hattie <laughs> uh, and Uarda, uh, my mom Havana, and my aunts Patsy and Betty, I think they all really, you know, just watching them and growing with them, they they turned me into who I am today. So those are a handful of Appalachian women that, that really inspire me.
9: My name is Lil Prosperino. I grew up on Big Cowan in Letcher County, Kentucky. I've lived kind of all over the county and uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, but I'm back here living now. I wanted to talk about a strong Appalachian woman that I've always admired who is my mother. Her name was Donna Frazier, later Donna Frazier Prosperino, and then Donna Frazier Thomas. She is deceased, but she was the strongest woman I've ever met in my entire life. As a child, You know, she raised me and my sister mostly by herself. My parents were divorced and I do have a relationship with my dad, but my sister's dad's not around at all. We were pretty poor growing up. You know, we lived in a really old house that my grandfather built. So I watched my mom chop up candle and bust up coal every day, shake out the grater at the bottom to get all the soot and dust out, you know, heat up water on the coal stove if our power went out so that we could take a bath. We raised a garden. She always had flowers planted. We always grew our own vegetables and we had chickens, things like that. Ways that I wish I lived now, but I really don't. Um, Maybe someday I'll get there. (laughs) But my mom, she worked full-time and also, you know, just raised us I don't know how she did it really, even when she wasn't working, she was volunteering at the school that we went to at Cowan. She was always just the most selfless person as a mother and as a friend to anybody who knew her. Even though I don't have children of my own, I hope that I have some of that. At least I try to be half the person that she was in my everyday life. I work as a mental health counselor and try to help people who are struggling here in Appalachia. I like to think that someday I'll be any bit of the person that she was. I'd be proud to just know that a smidge of her rubbed off on me.
0: That's it for this week's edition of Mountain Talk. If you'd like to listen to this or other episodes again, you can find them on our website at wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast on SoundCloud or Stitcher. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio from the heart of the hills in Whitesburg, Kentucky.